Well, good morning, everyone. I, I'm excited to be able to jump back into our series on the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been doing this for about a month now, and what I love about the Gospel of Mark is not only is it the first Gospel account written, but it's the Gospel account that truly announces that Jesus is the victory over sin and death. And if you remember, we're in this section of scripture that features five separate controversies about Jesus. In the first week of this, we talked about uh, Jesus forgiving a paralyzed man's sin and then proving that he had the power to forgive his sin by healing him of his paralysis. In the second week, which was last week, we, we saw Jesus calling a tax collector of all people to be his disciple and then going and dining with other tax collectors and known sinners because in Jesus's words, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. This week, we're going to be looking at another controversy, the third of five controversies, and this one's about fasting and expectations put on Jesus. How many of you have had unmet expectations from someone in your life? Raise, raise your hand. Mine's going to you know, keep going. All of our hands are up because we've all encountered some expectations that we've had of other people that haven't quite gone the way that we want them to. You know, as humans, we're always going to find ourselves with some form of incongruence between what we want to happen and what actually happens. Even though I wish that could change, that's the reality for us as humans. We're always going to desire for things to happen. Sometimes they're going to go our way. Other times they're not. And I think this is true with our relationships with one another, but I think it's also true with our relationship with God if we're being honest. Because the same expectations that we have of other relationships, we often put on God and expect him to do what we want him to do. And these expectations can ultimately be detrimental to a right relationship, not only with God, but with other people as well. So I want us to keep these things in mind as we go to our scripture this morning. And just a fair warning this morning, just a, a fair warning. I got quite a bit of scripture that we're going to jump around to. We're going to go Old Testament. We're going to go New Testament. We're going to be jumping around a bit. So you're going to hear me saying this is the word of the Lord a lot. And then remember the response is thanks be to God. Because now I remember that even though I couldn't remember it at small group this week. I'm always saying the first part and never remember the second part because I never have to to say that. But let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be reading 18 through 22 as our primary text. This is Mark writing. He says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this story is centered around this idea of fasting. It's really about having unmet expectations. 
You know, at this point in Jesus's ministry, he's become quite famous throughout at least this region of Israel because of his authoritative teaching and his miraculous actions. He's, he's gained a little bit of a notoriety among the people around him. They know who he is. They've seen him teach. They've seen him do these miraculous actions. We've even observed people declaring we've never seen anything like this before and contrasting this Jesus with other religious leaders of the day. We've already seen that and we've discussed that so far in the book of Mark. People are recognizing that Jesus is different than anyone they've ever seen before, but they're still trying to, to figure out what to do with that. They're not quite sure where he fits in in these different boxes. They see him as an authoritative teacher. They recognize him as some sort of prophet that's able to do some miraculous actions, but they're still expecting him to fit into all their boxes. And in this case, in this controversy, it's the box of fasting. They're wanting him to fit in to everything they've seen, everything they've heard, everything they've been observing, but that's not what Jesus is doing for them. He didn't come to do everything they wanted him to do. He's come to make all things new. He's come to do something a little bit different than what their expectation is. So I want to talk about fasting in ancient Israel for just a moment because I know everyone is going to be shocked by this, but history is kind of important. Context is kind of important. It's kind of important for us to know why something is being discussed because in reality, you can't just read the Bible and know exactly what it's saying. I know that's a shocker, but we can't just read the Bible and it's clear as day. Well, no, there's historical context that we need to understand. And it can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to the original audience. So that's my little disclaimer for this morning. And so I want to read a quote from Dr. Craig Keener, who's commenting on this passage. Dr. Keener is one of the uh, foremost scholars in this first century time period. And he, he writes this. He says, the law required fasting only on the Day of Atonement. The law required fasting only on the Day of Atonement, but Jewish tradition had added many other fasts. Pharisees were said often to fast twice a week without water. Fasting was an important practice to join with prayer or penitence, or penitence, I can't say that word, so we'll go with it. So it would have been unusual for disciples to have avoided fasting altogether. A teacher was usually regarded as responsible for the behaviors of his disciples. So I think that gives us a little bit of context of, of what's going on, but let's dive into the different uh, people that are involved in this. So we have John's disciples, we have the the Pharisees and their disciples, and ultimately these groups of people are part of two different renewal movements within Judaism in the first century. They're both trying to reform and renew Israel. They're trying to do something new. They're trying to, to return Israel to its former glory, and they're both going about that in, in a couple different ways. For, for John's disciples, fasting was certainly this prophetic declaration, this prophetic action, seeking God to bring about the salvation of Israel through the Messiah. And we know this because we've already seen John's own declaration that he's come as this person to, to be in front of the Messiah. He's come to make straight the path. He's come to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. So we know John and his disciples have that in mind when they're fasting. They're eagerly awaiting this, this Messiah to come and make all things new. 
And the Pharisees likely have some similar motivations. They, uh, I'm going to give some, the Pharisees credit for just a moment, but just a moment, and then we're going to, to tear down all the credit we gave them. So, you know, I'm not being a sympathizer to the Pharisees, but to their credit for just a moment, they also have this as a motivation. They're wanting the renewal of Israel. They're wanting reformation in Israel. They're wanting to overthrow the Roman Empire. You know, maybe not uh, jumping on with swords and doing it themselves, but they're wanting that to happen. They're eagerly seeking God for that to happen, to be delivered from the oppression of the Romans. But we also know that the Pharisees are big on making sure others see their acts of righteousness. We know that they're always there making sure all eyes are on them, that they're seen as authoritative, that they're seen as something themselves. And this was a practice that Jesus saw as hypocritical. It was something that he, he's constantly going at it with the Pharisees, and that's why I only gave them credit for just a moment before we moved on. But he's always going at it with the Pharisees because they're always trying to get attention to themselves about what they're doing while ultimately missing the point. And so I want to read from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning, and I want to read Matthew 6, 16 through 18, where Jesus talks a little bit about fasting, because I think it's helpful to have a bit more context here. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's remember the, the passage that we read in, in Mark 2 already. Is this, these aren't uh, John's disciples. These aren't the Pharisees, uh, the disciples of the Pharisees that are coming to Jesus and his disciples. These are random people. They're like, hey, these random people are coming. They're seeing, hey, John's disciples, they're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. So we know that both groups of people are making themselves to, to kind of be dis, disfigured a little bit. They're maybe a bit grumpy because they haven't eaten. And everyone's able to see that they're fasting. And this is contrary to what Jesus instructs with fasting. Jesus isn't ultimately against fasting. He just wants fasting to be done in the right heart. He's about it being done in the right heart. And I believe that there's ultimately this idea of a true fast, and we're going to jump into some Old Testament scripture in just a moment, that's infinitely worth more than, than fasting being done by others. There's a type of fast that ultimately we see as Jesus of the fulfillment that is worth infinitely more than just this regular fasting that was being done in the first century. So let's jump to Isaiah 58 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Prophet Isaiah is all sorts of fun, and so we can already imagine what's about to happen here, but I got to love the prophet Isaiah because he's just so blunt. He gets the revelation from the Lord, and then he, he just goes for it. So Isaiah 58, verse 1 through 7, says this, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and, and exploit all your workers. 
Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share food, your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is the word of the Lord. See, what I want us to see this morning is fasting of itself is not this noble task in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't this, this thing where the Lord's like, oh, they're fasting. I have to, to answer them because they've denied themselves food. Fasting was always supposed to be uh, coupled with justice. It was always supposed to be coupled with justice. See, God is always more concerned about justice and reconciliation than he is our own acts of righteousness. Because we know our own acts of righteousness, they never measure up. They never replace all the, the sin in our lives. That's why we need someone like Jesus to come and take our place. We need Jesus to step in. And what we see in Jesus' ministry, in his life, that he is this true fast. That the type of fasting that Jesus has chosen is to come and loose the chains of injustice. He has come to make straight the paths. He has come to break off the yokes of oppression. So what does this all have to do with unmet expectations? See, the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples, they were both fasting so that God might answer their cries. They're just crying out night and day. They're asking for God to answer their cries and to bring about the salvation of Israel. I want us to, to listen to this for just a moment. They're, they're already, they're crying out. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. But God had already answered their cries. God had already answered their cries, and the Savior of the world was on the scene working to bring about the salvation of all people. They're still fasting, they're still praying, they're still waiting. They're like, God, if you would just send a Messiah, if you would just send a deliverer, if you would just send someone, look, we're, we're fasting, we're denying ourselves, we're, we're stripping off everything, and we're, we're coming to you a humbly God. If you would just send a Messiah that would deliver us from oppression. God had already answered. God had already answered. He had already sent Jesus. He had already sent the Savior into the world. So the people are basically asking Jesus, if you're so special, why aren't you and your disciples crying out to God for the salvation of Israel? They're, they're coming face to face with the Savior of the world and saying, hey, why don't you care about the salvation of the world? Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you sitting in sackcloth and ashes? Why aren't you ripping your beard out and, and being distraught before the Lord for the salvation of the world? They're asking Jesus to pray and fast so that God might send a lion to ferociously liberate Israel from Roman rule. And yet Jesus had come as the spotless lamb to make atonement for their sin. They had an expectation of what this Messiah was supposed to look like, but Jesus looks different than what their expectation is. 
They were seeking a warrior king, and yet Jesus had come to be the crucified king. They wanted someone in power, but Jesus came in meekness. See, Jesus is the true fast. He is the one who has come to loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, and to break every chain. Why aren't you and your disciples fasting, Jesus? Because I'm living a life of fasting. I'm living a life of a true fast. And we know this because Jesus tells us this much when he quotes Isaiah in Luke 4, 18 through 19. He reads before the synagogue that day, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus is the one who has come to inaugurate a new kingdom. He was there to inaugurate a new type of kingdom, and yet people's expectations was for him to do something less than that. He was there to do something different, but all the people were expecting him to do something less. They want him to fast and pray, but he's come to make all things new. He's come to to do something completely different. He's not interested in, in fasting without justice or to make a show of symbols. He's come to bring about salvation. Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting when the disciples of the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting? He's like, because I am the salvation you are looking for. I am the Savior who has come to make all things new. How can they possibly fast when I'm here? How can they fast when I'm here? But Jesus recognizes that the people aren't really getting it. He recognizes that they're going to to need their understanding stretched in order to see this. And and to do this, what Jesus does is he uses this uh, symbol or this image of a multi-day wedding feast. See, in, uh, in ancient Israel, weddings were a bit different than the way we do it. They typically lasted for about seven days, and they were full of feasting. They were full of celebration, and it was a good old time. So, you know, Chris, Maggie, that's what we're expecting, seven-day celebration. You know, I know you guys already planned the honeymoon like a week out, so, I mean, maybe that's what we're, we're doing. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll talk about that. So Jesus uses this symbol, this imagery for what he's come to do. He's using this idea of this multi-day wedding celebration. Because people at a wedding celebration, they weren't permitted to fast. They weren't permitted to mourn. They weren't permitted to look somber during the midst of the celebration. Because it was ultimately this time of, of joy. It was this time of celebration. It was like, hey, there's a new union here. Let's celebrate. Let's, you know, uh, never mind. We're not, we're going we're gonna to move on. I don't know. My brain started going somewhere and then it went somewhere else and I don't know. You know, I got to stick to my stick to my notes here because when I get off it's bad. See, this imagery, this symbol would have made sense from a cultural perspective to the people listening to him. And it can make sense to us as well because we go, like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't mourn, you shouldn't fast at a wedding, you should be excited. But Jesus is actually going a little bit above this. We know that Jesus likes to, to speak in parables. And anyone who would have been hearing him in first century Israel would have been like, hey, hold on, wait a second. Is Jesus claiming to say what I think he's claiming to say? Because it would appear that Jesus is claiming to be the bridegroom and that his disciples are the bride. 
And that carries a, a different type of messianic connotation that would have left the people thinking, is that what, is that what he's actually saying? Is he, is he claiming to do this? And so let's go ahead and read Hosea 2, 16 through 23. Like I said, we got lots of scripture this morning. We're going all over the place, but I think it's helpful for us to see this full idea of what's being here in the text. Hosea 2, 16 through 23. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to those I called not my people. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. See, God had promised Israel that he would be a husband to them. And that a new covenant would be inaugurated. And if you read the book of Hosea, it's actually one of my my favorite prophetic books because it's so much the symbology uh, of the covenant of God where where Hosea uh, goes and marries a, a prostitute that prostitutes herself out and then will kind of return occasionally and then will go back to her former ways. And that's such a symbol that we see in the Bible between God and Israel. God promised Israel that that something new was coming about. There would be a new covenant. And the people confronting Jesus certainly believed this. They believed that a new covenant was coming. They believed that something new was going to happen. Yet their expectations of how it would happen were way off. They had some unmet expectations, and ultimately, they're coming face-to-face with the Savior of the world, yet they're missing the blessing and joy of knowing him because of their expectations of what he would do. They miss knowing this Jesus, truly knowing him, truly experiencing him, truly having relationship with him because their expectations were off. The son of the living God was there doing all kinds of miracles, who was teaching authoritatively, was teaching like no one had heard before, yet they don't see what's happening before their very eyes. They see that that something's happening, but they're still not quite sure what to do with it. They don't recognize that something new is happening. They're still trying to put this new wine into old wineskins. The people were awaiting this military savior to liberate their land, and yet God had had sent a spiritual savior to liberate their souls. They expected one thing, and yet God answered in a greater way than they were expecting. The bridegroom was there to inaugurate a new covenant with the people of Israel and the entire world. 
And here at the end of this, this passage in Mark, we begin to get this first glimpse at what Jesus is doing. We begin to see what's going to happen, and this is the first time that Jesus alludes to his death in the Gospel of Mark, that the bridegroom will be snatched away, that will be taken away from the bride. The bridegroom has come for the bride, but Jesus reveals that the bridegroom must be taken away. Jesus has come to fulfill the task at hand, which is the salvation of the world. But even that doesn't look quite what the people are expecting. I want you to listen to to what Dr. Daniel Aiken says about this. He says, The bridegroom, our Lord Jesus, would be snatched away to suffer alone on a cross to atone for our sins. To die the death we should have died. To pay the price for sin we should have paid. He died in my place. He bore my wrath. He took on my judgment. God killed his son so he would not have to kill me. There is an appropriate time to fast and mourn. It is when I consider the infinite price paid for my sin by my Savior. He took my place. He took your place. He bore your sins. He bore my sins. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to liberate our souls from a spiritual death. He came to give us freedom. He came to give us new life. He came to give us salvation. And if the people would have just laid down their expectations, if they would have laid down their expectations, they would have seen that God was in the midst of doing the new thing that he had promised to do. If they would have laid down what they expected it to look like, they would have been able to witness God at work. Jesus came to do something new, and yet people are focused on how things had always been done. They were still focused on how things had always been done. They were in this rut of, God, will you send a Messiah? Will you send a Messiah? Will you send a Messiah? And the Messiah is right there in front of them. Jesus is there establishing, in the process of establishing the kingdom of God on earth and bringing a new covenant. He was there doing this in their midst, and they're questioning him, why don't your disciples fast? Why aren't you crying out for the salvation of Israel? Because the way that that Israel is going to be saved, the way that the whole world is going to be saved is through the ultimate act of self-denial. Through the ultimate act of self-denial, a true fast where Jesus willingly dies so that you and I might live. He was whipped. He was beaten so that you and I might live. His arms spread out, nailed to a wooden cross. Nails driven through his wrists so that you and I might live. He was mocked and he was scorned so that we can live. He was crucified in our place. Crucified in our place so that our sins might be forgiven. He's the savior of the world. The savior of the world. The crucified king who willingly denied himself for our salvation. He's being asked about fasting and he's like but just wait i'll show you what self-denial looks like i'll show you what it looks like it it's coming this is what true fasting looks like 
This is what true fasting looks like. And a proper response to this, a proper response to this revelation is our own form of mourning. It's our own form of fasting. We don't deserve this salvation. We don't deserve this salvation, yet God has provided it for us. He's provided a way for us to be reconciled to him through the death of his son. My sin, your sin, put him on the cross. Our sin nailed him to the cross. And that should create a sense of somberness within us. It should create a sense of somberness within us because this is why Jesus went through this. To save us from our sin from your sin, from my sin. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, we, we see the disciples praying and fasting. We see them gathered together. We see them waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and going out and living lives of self-denial. We see them following in Jesus' footsteps. And if, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, several months ago I read from the Apology of Aristides. And we even see then that the disciples would fast. They would fast in order to have enough food to share with the hungry. That's true fasting. That's true fasting. That's true self-denial. It's living the kingdom of God out. See, something new had happened in the disciples' lives, and they were forever changed. They had witnessed this Jesus come into the world. They had seen that he truly is the Messiah, that he truly is the Son of God, that he truly is the true fast that has come to bring about justice and something forever changed in them. They were forever changed because a new thing was happening and they recognized it. I want to begin to wrap up by reading the lyrics to a hymn called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it goes like this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Oh, how great is God's love for us. How great is the Father's love for us. How deep is the Father's love for us. How good is the Father's love for us. Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that he could die in our place. So that he could die in our place so that we might be forgiven and made children of God. Nothing else compares to this reality. There is nothing else that can compare to this. And so here's my question for us today. 
What expectations do you have of God that are getting in the way of experiencing who he is? What expectations do you have of God that are getting in the way of experiencing who he is? Are you expecting him to make you happy? Are you expecting him to make you wealthy? Are you expecting him to make you wise or successful? Let me put it another way. What expectations do you have of God that are getting in the way of you remembering his great love for you? That are getting in the way of remembering this great salvation? You're expecting him to do something else that he hasn't promised? Those are the things that we need to get rid of. Those are the things we need to root out. As I said a couple weeks ago, God is not a cosmic genie that must grant all our requests. It's not a cosmic genie that must grant all our requests. Rather, he is the God who provides the most valuable thing imaginable, the salvation of our souls. In Jesus Christ alone, in him alone, only through Jesus do we have salvation. The old is gone, the new is here because of what Jesus has done for us. We must not move quickly away from that. We must not move quickly away from this revelation of salvation, from this goodness that we have been saved, that we deserve death, and yet Jesus took our place. We must not allow our expectations of what we think God should do get in the way of living in the joy of his salvation. We must not let that happen. I promise you, I promise you that no matter what happens, No matter what happens, God's salvation is of more worth and there is nothing that can come in the way of it. There's nothing that can come in the way of the joy of his salvation, of his great love for you. Knowing God and experiencing his love is greater than anything else in the world. Knowing God and experiencing his love is greater than anything else in the world. How do you know that, Kevin? How do you know that? Are you, are you sure? You don't know what I'm going to go through. You don't know what I'm going to need God to do. You don't know how hard it's going to hurt when he doesn't answer my request. You don't know when he's not going to, to meet my expectations. You don't know what's going to happen. But this I do know. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let go of your expectations. Let go of your expectations and rest in Jesus' salvation. Let go of the expectations of what you want God to do, of what you need him to do, of what he must do. Let go of all of those things because he's already provided the most valuable thing you could ever ask for, your very salvation, your reconciliation to him. He has made you a child of God through Jesus if you accept him. If you accept him, he makes you his child. You will go through struggles in this life. I will go through struggles in this life. Things won't always go the way that we want. In fact, most times I don't think they end up going the way that we want them to go. But that's okay. It's okay. We've got to rid ourselves of these expectations. We have to rid ourselves of these expectations and focus on what Jesus has done. 
because of what he has done, what Jesus has done for you, you can cling to his salvation. You can cling to his salvation and know that his love for you is stronger than anything else in this world. Anything that you'll ever encounter, his salvation is greater. His love is greater. He is a good God who has come to bring about the salvation of the world. And he's come to bring salvation to you and I. Let's pray.